0: Hello, Philip Tarzien here, editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast of the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard this week, looking at the September 1st issue of the Weekly Standard. And our lead review this week is um, entitled Giant Tennis Shoes, the Overestimation of the John Birch Society. It's a review of a book called The World of the John Birch Society, Conspiracy, Conservatism, and the Cold War by D.J. Malloy from Vanderbilt University Press. And I asked Stephen Hayward, who's probably the preeminent scholar of uh, certainly the Reagan era and, and to some degree conservatism, uh, to review it for us. And he does a first-class job uh, for those of you um, who... Uh, for whom the John Birch Society doesn't mean anything. It was a it was a, a right wing political organization founded in 1958 by a New England manufacturer named Robert Welsh, and uh, named for a U.S. Army officer who was killed by the Chinese Communists toward the end of World War II. He, he John Birch had nothing to do with the John Birch Society. Um, but Robert Welsh was a very, very, uh, right-wing conservative, so right-wing one might argue that he thought that, uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, this was in 1958, was a, a, uh, if not a secret, um, um, a, an unconscious ally of, of the communists. Um, he was a, uh, he was a, he was a purist, um, of the purist order in that era, and the John Burt Society never was particularly um, significant in terms of numbers or political influence, but it was a, uh, a, a segment, a small segment, but a segment, an agitating segment nonetheless of the, of the Republican right in that era, and especially it loomed very large in um, the left imagination, um, liberals of the era were obsessed with the John Birch Society. It penetrated the uh, popular culture. I can remember a very popular song from the Chad Mitchell trio of the early 1960s called the John Birch Society, which was actually funny rather than indignant. But most of the treatment of the John Birch Society in that era um Took it more than seriously. It, it regarded it as the vanguard of the of the Republican future, and everything that was wrong with the paranoid right in the United States. Very much in accord with the uh, views in the Academy of people like Richard Hofstadter at Columbia and Arthur Schlesinger at Harvard, and others, who saw in the John Birch Society the 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 dangerous wave of of the right in American. Society, which to some degree um, found fertile ground in the Barry Goldwater uh, presidential campaign of 1964. Goldwater himself was not a bircher and had very ambivalent feelings about them, but also felt he really couldn't distance himself from them, um, as William F. Buckley in the National Review had done. Um, Actually, an interesting uh, chapter in the history of, the National Review and in the history of the influence of William Buckley on the American conservative movement was his, um, in effect, writing the John Burt Society out of, you know, of respectable conservatism. Anyway, the John Burt Society was never quite the colossus that uh, the left imagined it to be. But nevertheless, it's an interesting subject. It was an unquestioned phenomenon and and still exists, although in vastly truncated form. It really hasn't loomed very large in the American imagination since the mid-60s, even though it does technically exist. And Stephen Hayward, as I expected he would, has given us a very, very thoughtful and even-handed and, in my view, fascinating uh, analysis of the of the Jumbert Society and of this book, which is written by a, a sort of standard-issue academic who uh, in, in the usual uh, way, tends to overestimate the the significance of the John Bird Society. But one might almost argue that Steve Hayward's review is probably all you need to read. But in any case, I strongly urge you to read and enjoy. That is followed by an essay by Barton Swain, a, an occasional contributor to these pages, on a book called Gwyn's Grammar, the Ultimate Introduction to Grammar and the Writing of Good English by a man named N.M. Gwynne, published by Knopf. I was initially attracted to the book just because I'm always sort of intrigued by um, books on grammar and usage, uh, some of which, like Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, have have found an unexpected um, uh, resonance in the the, uh, reading, if not book-buying public, some of which, of course, like The Elements of Style by Strunk and White, have a kind of enduring... Uh, respectability, if not popularity. Um, and Gwynne's grammar is full of um, uh, Mr. Gwynne's uh, singular views on the subject. Um, and Barton Swain is not as enthusiastic about Gwynne's grammar as um, Knopf and Mr. Gwynne might wish him to be. But uh, as is often the case with the, a, a, a good book review, he he tells us about um where this kind of book stands in the long history of books telling us how to um, how to properly use our our native tongue uh, Mr. Gwyn is very much a prescriptivist, which means someone who who knows what the rules of proper English are and thinks we ought to follow them um, as opposed to those who uh, who tend to uh, regard language as a as a as a kind of living entity and recognize that it changes with time and usage. Gwynn is very much a prescriber, um, and not all of his prescriptions uh, are are agreeable in Barton Swain's view, but but his review um, certainly makes the subject uh, very interesting and uh, very rewarding, I think, which along the same lines is followed by a a piece by James Seaton, another frequent contributor to our pages, of a book entitled The Long and Short of It, From Aphorism to Novel, by Gary Saul uh, Morson. Uh, Morson is a professor of English at uh, Northwestern, and while I don't know what his politics are, he unquestionably uh, falls into the category, the conservative category, in his view of um, the the study and use of literature in the liberal arts he believes that um, um, uh, we read we ought to read literature we ought to read novels um, in order to gain what he calls wisdom and insight um, one of the problems of the liberal arts in modern decades has been that it's been it's been kind of overwhelmed by politics and dogmatism and uh, uh, professors of English tend to uh, fall into certain schools of ideological thought rather than uh, appreciators or uh, analysts or even popularizers of literature. Morrison is very old-fashioned in that regard, and this is a, a series of essays along those lines. I think for anybody concerned about the status of the liberal arts in our culture and also how these things are taught in our colleges and universities, which is always an eye-opening topic. Um, Morrison's book sounds very interesting, and certainly James Seaton's um, review uh, tells us a great deal um, uh, on the subject that I found of interest, and I know, I suspect you will too. I have a piece by Catherine Lewis, um, uh, a writer here in Washington, on uh, Arvo parrot who's a, a Uh, uh, Estonian uh, composer um, who not terribly well known in the United States but is actually one of the most influential and um, uh, popular composers in the world at the moment in terms of performances of his work and there's something called the Arvo Part Project which uh, straddles Washington and New York where there have been productions of his uh, Symphonic and, and choral works, um, and uh, Catherine Lewis does a very good job of. Uh, it's always difficult to render music in in language. It's hard to describe what music sounds. You don't. It's, it's difficult to get a sense of what music is like um, from descriptions. I've often been very disappointed after reading uh, descriptions of. Um, music in, in all kinds of genres, I, I turn to the actual music itself and find that it's it's um, not quite as um, uh, impressive as it's described. But Catherine Lewis describes Perth's music in an interesting and useful way, and actually when I, when I repaired to YouTube to sample some of the pieces she talks about, I found that she was pretty good at describing him, and he's well worth listening to. So it might be an introduction to you of a of uh, someone who who probably is a uh, uh, will be regarded as a modern master. Following that are a couple of uh, familiar essays. One starting with Joe Queenan, uh, called "The Hunger Artist." Joe, of course, who who uh, has a tremendous gift for riffing on uh, uh, themes in our society. He takes a number of well-known writers of our time and assumes that before they before they made it big in the lit biz that in order to make ends meet instead of uh, driving a cab or working in a power plant or uh, teaching uh, in elementary school or some of the other things that novels have tend to do that they were in the financial um, world um, writing about uh, high-yield bonds and uh, writing prospect- corporate prospectuses and things like that it's it's one of those Joe Queenan essays that sounds, um, slightly insane when it's described, and is and is difficult to describe in any plausible way. But once you read it, you you will not stop laughing, and that is followed by a, a, a very charming essay by uh, John, John Steinbreder about an interesting phenomenon that I I had never heard of actually, um, but it's a, a an annual camp meeting in Texas called the Bloys Camp Meeting where a large group of, um, not necessarily Texans, but um, people often with Texas roots who meet every summer uh, in a slightly remote part of the state, uh, specifically in a place called Fort Davis, Texas. And it's a kind of a uh, uh, couple of weeks of a kind of Texas version of Chautauqua where there's, there are religious services, there are lectures, there's music and this whole, the whole thing. The author, John um is actually descended from one of the founders of the Boys' Camp Meeting, which has been going on since the 1880s, and uh, involves each year about 3,000 uh, people, men, women, and children. It's one of those little um, cultural phenomena in, in America that not many people know about, but which have a kind of enduring his, uh, a long history and a, and a kind of enduring value, and it's a very charming description of it, which I, I believe you will find interesting. And and John Podhoritz's uh, uh, movie review this week is of a movie in, entitled Boyhood, um, directed by Richard Linklater, which ha- doesn't have too many big name uh, stars, except I suppose Ethan Hawke, but. The interesting thing about boyhood, one might say, the gimmick about boyhood is that it's, it's a, it's a dozen years in the uh, life of a young boy. Once by coincidence, he's in Texas. Um, but what's of interest is that it actually was filmed in real time, which is to say, it's it's a project that the director began a dozen years ago and simply pursued on a, on a part-time basis and certain actors such as Ethan Hawke would, I guess, helicopter in periodically to film a, a place in a scene or that sort of thing. But, but the actors act instead of having uh, two actors playing the same person at different ages, they simply have the one actor who literally ages over the 12 year period. Um, John, John, finds it an interesting premise and, and I, I, I think to some degree he thinks the the movie works, although in I guess the fatal flaw from his standpoint is that the hero, the boy in, in question uh, is probably the least interesting character in the movie. Everyone around him is is a little more fascinating, which I suppose to some degree is uh, describes more than a few movies and novels and stories, but but according to John, is certainly the case here. So that is our Books and Arts section for the September 1st issue. I hope I have enticed you uh, just a little to, to uh, read the actual text and um, learn a little something and uh, gain a little insight, perhaps laugh uh, two or three, maybe even four times. And I hope that that uh, insight and laughter will tide you over sufficiently till we meet again next week. In the meantime, thanks very much. Philip Terzian here. Thank you again.